Hey, this is Jeremy Isaacs, lead pastor of Generations Church, where we want to live like it matters. For more information about our church, you can visit us at g.church. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Thanks again for listening. Steph, I will tell you, you have a tough job today because, man, our 9 o'clock service, they were with it today. They were on it today. So I've said so many different times, I preach better and I preach shorter the more you talk back to me, okay? So the louder you are, the shorter I go. So if you've got lunch plans, you just better get ready, all right? Uh, But man, I'm so thankful that you're here. I really am. I know I referenced it earlier, but uh, this is kind of the winter break, school school break for for a lot of our public schools, uh, some of our private schools as well. And so we've got folks that are all over the country. We've got campuses this week in Disney and Las Vegas and the beach and cabins and Uh, But no, I'm so thankful for those of you that are watching online that couldn't be here, but I'm thankful for those that are in the room. I really am. There's something special about being together, worshiping together. You encourage me, you strengthen me, and I've loved hugging your neck and talking to you so so far today out in the lobby on your way in. If I didn't get a chance to do that, I'll do that on the way out today. Uh, We've also got a number of people that are sick, including in our family, Uh, but I know sickness is going around, and so hopefully you stay well and whole and uh, and healthy, and, and we're praying for those that are sick uh, but man, just a, a really, really great day today already, and I'm excited about what God's going to do in the remainder of our time. And man, I loved that video. Uh, our staff is crazy. Uh, a couple of our staff guys also posted a video on Valentine's Day. They gave you some like Bible pickup lines, I guess. I'm not really sure, but if you didn't catch that, you can go to one of our social media channels and see that video. But uh, the Marriage Matters Conference is coming up in just a few weeks. We want you to register. So many of you jumped on on Valentine's Day when we opened registration and you registered for that, or others of you throughout this week. Uh, we had a number of couples register today. You can do that from your seat. You can also do that at the table in the lobby on your way out. But we want you to be here for that Friday night and on Saturday, March 10th and 11th. We believe it's going to be a really, really special weekend. We believe that your marriage matters, and we believe the matters of your marriage, uh, we need to talk about them. And so we're going to do that on that weekend. And then uh, just by way of announcement, I think we've already talked about it a couple of times, but the following Saturday, March the 18th, is our March Manness event. And so all the men, let me hear all the men. That was good. I like it. I like it. I don't know why we all go real low when we do that, but I am excited for the men uh, of the house. And so we want you to be here for that. It's going to be a great night. We're going to smoke some meat and eat some good food, and we're going to watch some March Madness a little bit. We're going to come together, worship a little bit, be challenged by God's word about what it means to just be a godly man. And so we want you to be here for that. Registration will open this next week, and you'll hear more about it over the coming weeks. But go ahead and put that on your calendar, March the 18th. We want all the men of the house to be here for that, men of all ages. It's going to be a really, really special night. Two weeks ago, we started a new series called Real Families. We told you that week that there's no such thing as the ideal family. Everybody wants you know, to think that there is an ideal family and that they, they have it or that they're striving for it. But there's just the reality of family life, that it's messy sometimes, it's broken sometimes, there's all kinds of things because we're filled, our families are with imperfect people, us, trying to figure out how to do this thing called family. And so uh, we've, we've done that over the last two weeks, and we've been looking to the family of King David from the Old Testament and so many stories from his life and his family that help us to draw uh, great wisdom for what we should and maybe sometimes what we shouldn't do in our family life. And so we're going to continue there today, but I'd love for you, if you haven't been with us each of the first two weeks, to jump on our YouTube channel or the podcast to catch up. Today, if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Now, we're going to kind of tell a larger story that spans really a part of 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel but I'll I'll lead you where we're headed. But 1 Samuel is that place in the history of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, 
where they're, they're trying to figure out how to live without a king. They've got prophets that God has installed at various places throughout their history. And there would be prophets that, that t- you know, kind of take leadership uh, in, their, in their history at different times before uh, God gives to them at their request a king with King Saul and then eventually King David. But in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we're not yet to the kings of Israel. We're still in that prophet, that time of prophets. And so the prophet of that time is a man by the name of Eli. Eli's a good man. He hears from God. We read a number of great stories about Eli and the way that God uses him. And in this story, we see another example of the places where Israel is at war with the surrounding nations. And so they have a number of enemies that they fight against on a regular basis. One of them, and we read about this two weeks ago when we talked about Goliath, but uh, one of those is the Philistines or the Philistines, however you want to enunciate that word. And so you've got the Philistines who are really the, the, one of the primary enemies of the Israelites, the people of God. And so we see them coming to do battle again here in 1 Samuel chapter 4. So the Philistines have camped at a place called Ebenezer. And the Israelites are kind of on the other side of the hill, and so they're about to go to battle. And when they go to war at Ebenezer, the Philistines win that battle, and 4,000 of the Israelite army are killed on that day. Well, as you can imagine, the Israelites are like, man, the enemies of God have defeated now the people of God. What should we do? Now, Eli, I told you who's the prophet, he had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And those two sons did not follow their father's footsteps. They were not good guys. They were not people that served God and were used by God. They were not the greatest men. And so they decided, since they lost the first battle and 4,000 were killed, how do we win the next battle? And so they and the people decide that they're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to talk about that in a second, what that is. The Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield to try to kind of use God as a lucky charm to win this battle. Now, Let me just stop for a second and tell you, if you don't know, the Ark of the Covenant was the tangible presence of God among his people. God had given to them very specific instructions about how they should build the Ark and what materials they should use and what things should be put into the Ark to represent his provision for them, his presence to them, his glory among them in the tabernacle and as they moved from one camp to the next. And so it was a really special thing that God had gifted to them. But God does not want to, you or me to use him as this like token lucky charm kind of God. There's no specific magic formula to the glory of God. And so, you know, sometimes we are guilty, and I start with me, we are guilty of thinking we know how to get the best of God. He's like our genie, you know, he's granting us wishes. But that's not who God is, nor who God wants to be in our lives. It's not, it's not wishes, it's prayers and conversation, and God's not on the hook to grant those wishes. He desires to do what is best in our hearts and in our lives. And so when Hophni and Phinehas decided to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield, they weren't seeking the relationship with God. They weren't seeking the will of God, which is what he desires in relationship with us. They were just trying to take something of God's and stamp it onto their effort to win a battle. And so often that's what we do. We kind of do our own thing, live our own way and say, God, now bless it. God, I've got my Bible over here. I'm going to open it up and figure out what to read. And we kind of do that parachute reading where we're like, what am I going to read today, Lord? I need something. I'm going to read this. And the grain offering, and we're like, I don't have, I don't know how that affects my life, right? And that's what we do. We just, we don't have this like systematic, relational, like I'm just going to spend time with God on a regular basis. And so I don't really know where to go when I need God. Well, that's what Hophni and Phinehas did. They just grabbed the Ark of the Covenant and brought it to the battlefield, hoping that that would be enough to win the battle. 
Well, so they go back to battle after the first battle at Ebenezer where 4,000 were killed. Now they go back into battle. And on that day, they lost again and 30,000 men were killed. Not only that, but this is like one of the worst days in the history of Israel. 30,000 people died. 30,000 Israelites died in battle. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, they both died in the battle. And if that wasn't bad enough, the Ark of the Covenant was stolen by the Philistines. Like, that's a pretty bad day. I don't know how many bad days you've had in your life, but that's got to rank way up there. 30,000 died. We lost to our enemies. The two sons of the prophet of God were killed. And the Ark of the Presence of God was stolen by the enemies of the people of God. That's terrible. And so now one of the messengers, this, this man from the tribe of Benjamin, he gets away and he decides to run back and tell Eli what has taken place. He comes running up the hill towards the town and Eli has been sitting on the wall waiting to hear a message about what took place in battle. And he gets word from this messenger and he says, hey, it's terrible. It's way worse than you could even imagine. We lost the battle of the Philistines. 30,000 people were killed of our brothers in battle. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed. And if that wasn't bad enough, the Ark of the Covenant was stolen by the enemies of God. Eli is so distraught, he falls backwards off the wall that he's sitting on, and he breaks his neck, and he dies. It's, the, it's a bad day getting worse. It's Alexander's no good, horrible, very, very bad day, right? And now the word begins to spread through the town. It's like, oh, this is terrible. And the wife of Phinehas, the daughter-in-law of the prophet Eli, she's great with child. She's pregnant. And she hears the word that 30,000 have died. Her husband and her brother-in-law and now her father-in-law have all died on this day. And the Ark of the Covenant was stolen by the Philistines. This is terrible. She's so distraught that her body goes into labor. And she gives birth to a baby boy. And just before she dies, she says this in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 21 and 22. And she named the child Ichabod, saying the glory of God is gone. Because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. And then she passed away. What a terrible terrible day in the history of Israel. And if that wasn't bad enough, there's this lingering reminder of how bad that day was because there's this boy who grows up with the name Ichabod. Aren't you so thankful your name's not Ichabod? Anybody's name actually Ichabod? I, I thought I was going to ask that. Maybe some of you are like, no, I, I go by something else. But, you know, that's a terrible name, not just because it's a bad name. Names are important. Some of you, you go by a nickname or a middle name because you don't like your first name. But like, it's a bad name, but it's also a bad name because of what it means, what it represents. So, so few of us know kind of the, the, the history of our name or the definition of our name, but he would have been walking around all of his life and they would have been calling him, hey, the glory of God is gone, come over here. Hey, the glory of God is gone, come over here. Like, it would have been this lingering reminder of this dark day in the history of the Israelite people. What a terrible, terrible thought that not only does he carry the stigma of this bad name, but also the reminder that the glory of God actually was gone from the people of God. When I talk about the glory of God, what do I mean? We use that phrase, we talk about that term glory and the glory of God, and, and maybe this doesn't help clear it up for you, but when we're talking about the glory of God, we actually mean like the magnificence of God. 
Like the full scope of who he is, his power and his might, his love and his justice and his grace. It's this all-encompassing thought of his presence and his power and it's his glory. It's it's unexplainable. It's really undefinable because of, of who we're talking about. It's not some fleeting glory or fame like you might have a celebrity here on the earth. It is transcendent. It goes from the alpha to the omega, the beginning to the end, like it extends and expands. It's his glory. It's his magnificence. And it's this two-way thing. We declare his glory. We declare his goodness, which we have been, but we also seek his glory and we seek his presence and we seek his love and his power in our lives and in our gatherings when we come together. I don't know if you've seen over the last few days, perhaps, but there's several different places throughout our country right now where they have had some type of what has been defined as a, or what has been called as a revival or a spiritual outpouring or an outpouring of God's presence or prayer vigils. And a number of those have taken place on universities and college campuses. And it's been amazing to watch the next generation in so many of these places just kind of staying and spending time in the presence of God. And there doesn't seem to be, in most of these instances, a lot of programming to it. It just seems like they had a chapel service or they had a prayer service, and they just decided to stay. And then they try to bring some form to it, but there's not a lot of format and programming. It's just people lingering in, tarrying in the presence of God with one another. And so there's prayer, and there's kind of spontaneous singing, and sometimes there's a guitar, and sometimes there's a piano or a few instruments, but it's, it's, it's very simple And again, it seems to be about people just pursuing and declaring the glory of God and watching his glory fill that space. And the testimonies that I read and the testimonies that I hear from people that have been there, and I haven't been to any of these specific outpourings, I'm specifically referring kind of primarily to Asbury in Kentucky and Lee University in Tennessee and Samford in Birmingham. And I know there's others, not just on universities, but also in some local churches and other places. But the people that give firsthand accounts are saying, like, it's overwhelming, There's a thickness, it feels, in the room. Maybe that's a unique thought to you, but there's just like this thick sense in the room of the presence of God, of the glory of God, and that's that's incredible. But there's also some people, and this seems to happen every single time there's any move of God. We see this even in the days of Christ, that there's these people that are on the outside who have put it upon themselves to say, well, I'm the one or we are the people that decide what is authentic and what is not. And what happens is, and I'll use a phrase here that may, may or may not be familiar to you, but like sometimes it kind of goes into this like pharisaical or Pharisee type spirit where it's like, no, we know the law and we know how God moves and we know the formats for revival and this doesn't seem to be that. And so we get to judge that this is not authentic. Now, there's an important aspect to the spiritual gifts that are outlined in the New Testament, specifically in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14. And in a couple of other places, there is the idea of discernment, the gift of discernment. And discernment is truly discerning or determining what is of the Spirit of God and what is not of the Spirit of God. And so that is a part of the way that God uses people on the earth to determine, is this God or is it not? But I also think whenever there are revivals or outpourings or a move of God's Spirit in His presence in certain places, I mean, it brings out, and I'm, it brings out people that, that quickly determine what they think and then they begin to, to speak that pretty loudly. But again, I I haven't been there myself to any of these specific places over this last week or so, week and a half. But some people that I know and trust have been in those places. And man, their firsthand accounts are that it's very genuine, very authentic, and very real. But I was reminded of this passage of scripture in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5. It's a man by the name of Gamaliel. And 
he says this, and he's talking about the kind of the move of God that's taking place there in the early church of Acts. He said, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. I think we've got to be careful, all of us, how we choose to speak critically of what appears to be a move of God. We should have discernment. We should have wisdom. We should, we should use that and ask God to help us. But we should also be careful that just because it's different than we thought it would be, just because it might make us a little bit uncomfortable, that we don't begin to name and claim that those things are not of God Because sometimes, if we're not careful, we're actually working against the way God is moving in someone else. And here's the great challenge of that. I believe, and we see it in Scripture in a number of different places, but I don't believe God will bless you with what you are critical of him doing in someone else. you got to be careful. And I'm, I'm not just asking God to continue to do and to bless what he's doing in other places. I'm saying, God, send that revival here. Not just to this church, but to this community, the other churches of our community. Let your your blessing and your favor that we've been singing about and your presence and your power and then your glory fill these churches and fill our lives and let us have a hunger and a desire and a thirst for more of you and more of your presence in our life. I'm praying that for us and for our church and for our community, but we got to be careful because if we become critical of what God is doing in other places, I don't believe God's on the hook to do any of that here. And so we got to make sure that we have a clean heart and a pure heart as we hunger and thirst for more of God. But that seems impossible in this story because now the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, is with the enemies of God. The Philistines have taken the Ark. And so what do they do if you continue in the story? They take the Ark to the city of Ashdod. And they take it to Ashdod and they put it in the temple for their god, little g, Dagon. And they put the Ark of the Covenant next to Dagon, and when they do, they go to bed that night, and the next morning they wake up, and Dagon is laying face down before the Ark of God. And they're like, well, maybe the earth shook. Maybe there was a tremor. Maybe the wind kicked up. Maybe something happened. Somebody got in and moved some things around. So they bring in the Dagon lifters, and they put the ropes, and they lift him back up onto his right place, his mantle there in their temple They go to bed that night, and the next morning they wake up. And now, not only is Dagon laying face down before the ark of God, his head has been cut off and his hands have been cut off. And the Philistines start to clue in on, hey, you know what? There's something powerful about the presence and the glory of God and this ark of the covenant. And so they're like, hey, we've got a good idea. Why don't we send the ark over to Gath? They will love it. Let's just get it out of our town. Let's get it into their town. Hey, Gath, we're sending the ark over. You're going to love this thing. It's fantastic. So the ark gets to Gath and bad stuff starts taking place. And Gath's like, hey, we don't want it. Why don't we send it over to Ekron? Ekron, you're going to love this thing. We're going to send it over to you. It's on a tour now. Ekron gets it. Bad stuff starts to take place. And the Philistines start to decide, you know what? This is not actually our thing. Like, this is, this is the Israelites thing. We don't want it. We don't know how to handle it. We don't know what to do with it. So we're going to send it back to the Israelites. And so here's what they decide to do. They say, we're going to build a really nice brand new cart. We're going to put the ark up on that cart. We're going to take some oxen, some, some, some animals that have never pulled a cart before. We're going to put them out in front of that thing. We're going to take gold parting gifts that we've made and formed together. We're going to put them there on the cart just to say, hey, thanks for not killing us. We're going to send it back to you. And they start those oxen down the road going towards the, the, the people of Beth Shemesh. And so they're going to cross them over into uh, the Israel and they, they don't even go, they go as far as like the city limits. And so they're going to stop right there. And so what they do is they send these cows on 
And they see that eventually the people of Beth Shemesh find the ark. And so then the Philistines go back to their homes. Now the people of Beth Shemesh are like, oh, this is awesome. We have the ark of God back. This is incredible. Send word throughout all of the nation and tell them we got it back. But some of the men of Beth Shemesh are like, okay, well, we've got the ark back. But you know what I bet they did? I bet they took some of the stuff out of it. I bet they took some of the things that God told us to put. I bet they took the good stuff out. They sent it back, but they're trying to trick us. And so some of the men of Beth Shemesh, they look into the ark, even though God specifically told them not to do that. And on that day, 70 men died at Beth Shemesh. And the people of Beth Shemesh said this in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 20. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Who is able to stand before this holy God? This specific verse of scripture speaks to a holy fear of God. When I say the word fear, perhaps you start thinking of being scared of the dark. You start thinking of being scared of spiders. But that's not what this kind of fear of the Lord is. It's an awe. It's a reverence to his power, to his glory, that he invites us into relationship, that he gives us a glimpse of who he is, and he desires to have relationship with us. And we're like, man, who could stand before a holy God? Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 6, he said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm aware of who I am when I'm aware of who God is. Who can stand before a holy God? And so they say, hey, we can't, we don't even know what to do with the ark of God, the glory of God. And so they take it and they put it at a guy's house named Abinadab. And they leave it there for 20 years. Nobody has a passion to go and get the ark of God and bring it back to the city of God to be reunited with the people of God. And now in the history of Israel, if you continue to read through 1 Samuel, you come to those stories where they ask for a king. And Saul is anointed to be king, the first king of Israel. And he's a man that initially was building these incredible moments and monuments of worship to God. But by the end of his reign, he's building monuments and statues to himself. And God removes his anointing from Saul. And he puts his anointing on David and David becomes the king. And we see incredible stories through the kind of the second half of 1 Samuel into the book of 2 Samuel. And you see these stories in the books of Chronicles and incredibly powerful descriptive stories of David. But there comes this moment where David says, you know what, I, I want the glory of God back in the city of God with the people of God. We got to go get the ark. It's been down at Abinadab's house for 20 years. We got to get the ark. And so David decides, let's do this thing right Let's build really nice, fancy carts. Let's get some oxen that have never pulled a cart. Let's go down to Abinadab's house and let's put the ark on there and let's bring it back to the city. And so that's what they go and do. And they begin to dance and shout. But at some point on the journey, the oxen stumbles and the cart becomes wobbly and they're afraid the ark is going to fall off the ark. And a guy by the name of Uzzah reaches up to touch the ark just to hold it in place. But remember, you're not supposed to touch the ark and Uzzah dies immediately. And again, David kind of calls out the same thing that the people of Beth Shemesh Like, what are we supposed to do, God? How do we... How do we engage and interact with your glory and and what do we do with the holiness of who you are we're so confused and so they take the ark and they put it at a guy named Obed Edom's house for three months 
And word gets back to David that everything that's happening at Obed-Edom's house is blessed and favored. And it's powerful. And David's like, okay, we've got to get the ark back to the city of God. But this time, he goes to the scroll. You can read it in 1 Chronicles 15. That he's trying to figure out, like, what did we do wrong? There was something we did wrong. What did we do wrong? It's not about fancy carts. It's not about oxen that have never pulled a cart. It's not about the gold parting gifts that the Philistines tried to send our way. In 1 Chronicles 15, he's reminded that back in the law, back in the story where God gives them the ark, that God specifically said that when you build it, you put rings on the corners of the ark. And whenever you have to move the ark, you take poles and you slide them through the rings and you take the poles and you put them on the shoulders of the Levites, the chosen people of God. And those Levites would carry on their shoulders these poles that are carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And David said, that's it. We got to get poles. And so they build these poles. And they go back to the house of Obed-Edom. And he brings the Levites with him. And they take the poles and they put them up on their shoulders. And they start walking back to the city. And they take one, two, three, four, Five, six steps. And they put the ark back on the ground and they have like an amazing worship experience. Thanking God that he didn't kill them for moving the ark. Like, God, thank you that in your holiness and your righteousness and your justice, that when we were trying to take the ark of your presence back to the city of God, that thank you that you allowed us to take these steps and you didn't punish us as men of unclean lips. And God, thank you that when we've tried to be obedient, that God, you honored that and you've allowed us just one more day to live in your presence. Here's the question for all of us. How many steps have you taken today? You maybe could check your Apple Watch or your Fitbit and kind of look towards the door and figure out how many steps it was approximately to your seat. How many steps did it take to get to your car, from your car to the building How many times have we paused to thank God for the blessing of this day? For the blessing of allowing us to live one more day. For giving us the opportunity to declare worship in a room like this with other people. How many steps have we taken today without worshiping and thanking and glorifying God? How many steps have we taken today? And they pick the ark back up after their worship service at the end of these six steps. And this is what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning in 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out in the window, out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. Verse 20. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. That's sarcasm if you didn't catch it. Verse 21, David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. And I will celebrate before the Lord and I will become even more undignified than this. There's something really special that happened here. We kind of glazed over it as we were reading there in verse 14. It said that David was wearing a linen ephod. If you go back 
to the instructions that God gave through Moses, that was the kind of the underwear of the priests. It was what they were to wear underneath the garments that showed that they were the priests of God. So he took off his kingly robe, his status, his job, his employment, who people thought he was, the mask of all the things that people assumed about him. And he stood there as a worshiper. He stood there as an instrument to God in this linen ephod, and he danced with all of his might, the passion that God had placed on the inside of him, even in his imperfection so many times in his life, he declares out of that passion back to God. And his wife looks out the window and sees him and says, man, the king is so distinguished today. Made a fool of yourself, made a fool of me, made a fool of this house. And he says to her, God chose me. He didn't have to. But he chose me, and in response to that, I will become even more undignified than moments like this. The worship of God, the pursuit of his glory requires it of me. I remember when my dad tells the story when he was a pastor. I was a little kid. He was a pastor in High Point, North Carolina, very near the town of Kinley, which is why we named that little girl Kinley, by the way, but High Point, North Carolina is where he pastored, and they were having a really special time of revival in his church in a season. And there was a really sweet presence of God when they would gather a few nights in a row. And there was an older lady in the church who had been seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But during those services, she would just kind of sit there. She wouldn't do anything. She wouldn't say anything. She wouldn't respond to the promptings for prayer, to engage the presence of God. And so my dad went to visit her one one day at her house. And as he tells the story, he said to her, I don't remember her name, but I'm just going to call her Betty. He said, Betty, I know you're seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit. She said, I am. I want more of God, but I see these people rolling around on the floor and I see them doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And if that's what it takes to get the baptism, I don't think I want it. And my dad said to her, according to the way he retells the story, well, I don't think you have anything to worry about. What's he saying? Like, if you've got a limit to what you will do to pursue more of God, you probably got all of God you're going to get. But if you and I are willing to say, God, I, I believe you're a God of order. I believe that you're a God that has specific designs for all of our lives. But God, I want your glory in my life. I want your presence in my home. I want my marriage to reflect all that you have for it. I will become even more undignified than this. I will take off the status and the job and the perception of people around me. And I will stand in the garments of praise and worship before you and dance with all of my might. So what does this have to do with real families? What does this have to do with anything? I believe that in so many families, so often what we do is we choose to build really fancy carts. And we choose to put like really nice, fancy oxen up front that have never been used. Kind of our best human effort. And we say, God, I'm going to do things my own way. I'm going to live in a way that seems right to me and... I'm going to kind of live in ways that make sense to my neighbors and they see my effort and they think we're good people and we got the ideal family and our marriage is great and our kids are great and our jobs are great. 
And God is saying to us, no, 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 listen, that's, thank you for your effort, but like, just use poles. Just, just be obedient. Just trust that in my word, like I've already, I've already told you what to do. I've already told you, husbands, how to love your wives as Christ loved the church. I've already talked to wives about how they should love and respect their I got in a submitted heart to the Lord. Like I've already, I've already said that children should obey their father and mother, and this comes with a promise, and that parents should not kind of just make it difficult for their kids and frustrate their like I I've already I've already told you in family context what you should just be obedient. Just just put me first. Just get some poles in your life. Like that's all that I'm asking of you is just get some poles and just be obedient. And as soon as you do, there's going to be this desire on the inside of you when you take like three or four or five or six steps some days. Just of gratitude out of your heart and passion in your life to just call on the name of God and say, God, I just want your glory for my family. I just want your power in my life. I just want your purpose for our marriage. I I just want a better relationship with my children. I just want all that you have to fill our home. We take off the pretense and the robes and the things, and we just say we're just standing here before you, God, as as a son and a daughter of God, a worshiper of God Almighty. Like We just stand in your presence, and we worship you with all of our might because you're worthy. Your glory compels us to do so. Real families are filled with imperfect people. There's problems and brokenness and all of those things. And David got it wrong a couple of times and the children of Israel got it wrong. But as soon as they got it right, as soon as they went to his word, they opened up the scroll. It was so simple. It took them three months. It's not something you're necessarily going to fix today over lunch, perhaps. But the moment you find it, the moment you find it, the moment you seek it, God, I, I, want, I want to know what you want. God, what? we tried the fancy carts and the oxen and the gold parting gifts. Maybe that's what worked for, I, like, I just, what do you want, God? It's probably going to be way more simple than you think. Just do things God's way. We talked about it a little bit last week with sin. But maybe some of the brokenness in your family brokenness in your marriage, the brokenness in relationships, perhaps is because you've tried to do it your way and not his. You just got to get some poles in your life. Obedience in your life. And not ask God to rubber stamp your efforts with his blessing. But ask God what he blesses and do that real families seeking the glory and the power and the presence and the magnificence and the love and the grace and the scope of his nature to fill our homes and fill our lives and fill our hearts and then here's what will happen because I've watched it over and over and over and over again one or more of you in the family will have that passion that God placed on the inside of us He's placed it in all of us. We spill it out to a ton of other things, don't we? We we give our passion 
to our favorite teams. I do that. They play at 2 o'clock today. We scream and yell at the TV as if they can hear us. We give our passion to relationships and to our jobs. We give our passion to so many other endeavors. Some of them are not sinful at all. But what we see in King David here is that there's a passion on the inside of us that was meant for God Almighty. And my hope is that as one or more of you in your family experiences moments just like that, that there won't be a naysayer in the home. There won't be someone standing at the door and say, oh, look how distinguished you are and look what you've shown and look how you've embarrassed us. No, no, no. Let them pursue passionately all that God has for them. And say, hey, I want to go with you. I want to take this journey with you. I want the passion that God's placed in me to be poured out to him alone. Let's do this together. Let's do this as a family. And see the glory of God fill our home. See the glory of God, the holiness of God, the purposes of God, the plans of God fill our homes. So we're going to do in a minute. We're going to give you the opportunity today to be baptized if you choose to do so. If you've recently made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, we would love to baptize you. We didn't have anyone register for this service. We already baptized in the first service. We didn't have anyone register for this service. But what we always give you the opportunity to do is if you showed up today and you weren't ready, we want to help you be ready. You can, you can be baptized today. We've got some clothes out there. And you can be a little undignified and go to lunch wet today. We'll help you get dry. We got some clothes for you. But in just a moment, if the Lord's been prompting something in your heart, in just a second when I pray, I want you just to stand up and walk out to the lobby. And we've got some folks out there that will help you figure out what to do next. If no one does, that's okay. We've already celebrated baptism today, but we'd love to celebrate with you. For you to passionately declare that he is the Lord and Savior of your life. That you've made that commitment, that decision, and you want to go public with that. And you want us to hoop and holler and cheer and get a little undignified with you to celebrate what God has done in your heart and your life. So we'll give you that chance in just a moment. But before we do, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Just right where you're at, just bow your head, close your eyes just for a second. If you would say to me, Jeremy, for me, I know that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I need him to forgive my sins and to be the Lord of my life. And I don't want to take one more minute doing my own thing, but I want him to lead and guide my life from this moment forward. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right where you're at? I want to pray for you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Several hands today. Eight last week, several hands today. We celebrate with heaven for that decision that you've just made, that acknowledgement. And now if you would say, Jeremy, for me, it's not about salvation. But we want the glory of God in our family. We want the presence of God in our marriage and in our home and in our children. And if it requires obedience and polls, we want to do exactly what God has said and we'll seek that. We want the glory of God. If that's you, would you just lift your hand? So many hands today. Across both services, so many hands today.
God, I believe you're doing a work right now in some hearts. There are some of us that have built some really fancy carts for you. And I think you appreciate the effort, but you're saying, hey, it's, it's simpler than that. It's, it's obedience. It's poles. And so, God, I pray for every person that lifted their hands, several across this service, who've acknowledged that they need you to be the Lord of their life, to forgive their sins and lead and guide them. And so, God, I thank you that that's what you do. And so we celebrate with heaven now for those decisions that have been made. We want to we walk this journey with them. We want to resource them. We've got some things in the lobby to give them, to help them take those next steps. But God, we just ask you to lead and guide them, that they would live out the words of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that they would trust in the Lord with all of their heart and lean not in their own understanding, but in all of their ways they would acknowledge you and God that you would direct their path. We pray that over their lives right now. We ask you to give them the strength to obey and the strength to pursue. So God, we thank you for that. And God, now I pray for every family, every individual that lifted their hand to say, I just want the glory of God. I just want his glory and his presence in our home and in our marriage and our relationships and our family. And so God, I pray that now for every family. The real families that fill this place. Let us be obedient. Wherever we've gotten it wrong, let us correct it. Bring it to you. Repent if necessary. And God, never let us get to moving so quickly that we don't stop every few steps to thank you for your glory, for your presence, for your love, for your grace, for your patience with people like us. And God, thank you for the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you, to be gracious unto you and grant you peace. And you're rising up and you're laying down and you're going out and you're coming in both now and forevermore. God, give us your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Thanks again for listening. If today's message was an encouragement to you, we invite you to share it with your friends and family. Maybe subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It just helps us spread the word about what God's doing here at Generations Church. For more information about the church, visit us at g.church. Have a great day, and God bless.